All right, new Sunday, new month, new book of the Bible. Let's turn in our Bibles to the book of James, the book of James. And we're going to be going through the entire book together today. We'll be out by seven. The book of James. Whenever we start a new book, I always try to read through the book at least 30 times before teaching it in hopes to find a one-sentence summary to help you identify the main theme of the book. The book of James would certainly be summarized by the need for spiritual maturity, the believer in Christ growing into spiritual maturity. Now, that being said, we must define what spiritual maturity is, and we will do so as we go through the book. What does a spiritually mature Christian look like? But there is a sub-point to that. James also emphasizes the need of spiritual maturity when we go through trials, troubles, and tribulations as believers in Jesus Christ. The need to respond in those moments, in spiritual maturity. So as we go through the book of James together, the theme is found, the necessity of spiritual maturity, especially under the weight of trial, trouble, and tribulation. So let us begin this new letter together. Let's start in chapter 1, verse 1. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad. It's easy to read the greeting verses quickly, kind of fly through them, pass through them quickly, without really looking at the incredible wealth of information that is found at the beginning of each one of these letters. Now, we as Christians call these books of the Bible. But in actuality, they were letters written. They were letters written by the apostles to various churches throughout the world. Many of them were written very early on. For example, the book of James is dated anywhere between 44 and 62 A.D. If it was written in 44 A.D., that would have been simply 11 years after the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. So we have a very early glimpse into into the early church through the book of James. And in verse 1, we are given two incredibly valuable insights to this letter. Number one, we have the writer, James himself. And number two, we have the letter's recipients, the 12 tribes that are scattered abroad. And looking at these together will help us understand and help us interpret and apply properly the letter that is written afterwards, the content, the body of the letter. For Like any email or letter that is written, there is purpose to these letters. James is writing with a purpose in mind. He has a target group in mind that he wants to write to. 
So helping us to understand who this group of recipients are, what they're going through, will, will help us immensely to interpret the letter properly. One of the greatest dangers that we can run into is taking any one verse of the Bible independently from its immediate context and drawing a conclusion from it. We need to keep everything in context. Now, there are several contexts to keep in mind. Number one, there is the immediate context. When a verse is surrounded by verses that precede it and succeed it, that context should be the first context that we look at to help us to understand the verse that we are interested in studying or knowing. The second context is the immediate letter itself in its entirety, the totality of the letter, the whole thing. And then the third context, of course, is the context of that verse in the weight of the 66 books of the Bible, to look at it in that degree also. Now, there are other elements that I believe help with our interpretation, but context is key. That's why I think that expositional teaching through a book of the Bible is probably one of the healthiest teaching methods that there are in the church today, because it helps us keep verses in context. One professor once said that every cult in America started with a Bible verse taken out of context. I thought that was very interesting. You and I read things in context all the time to help us understand what is being said. For example, if we were to receive a letter from our friend, we would start at the beginning of that letter and we would read straight through it to the end to understand what the our friend wants to communicate through that letter. We don't pick and choose various sentences or paragraphs and just read those portions and walk away with a conclusion. For example, our friend may write to us and say, last week I had to go to the hospital. And your immediate conclusion is, oh no, what happened? I hope they're okay. But the next paragraph says, I needed to go to the hospital because I went into labor and I had our first child changes everything. I don't know why or when it became uh, the norm to read individual Bible verses apart from their context. I think topical teaching in a degree has contributed to that. I think the way we market Bible verses, you know, on t-shirts, on posters, on salt and pepper shakers, uh, I've seen Bible verses plastered everywhere. But often they're taken out of context. For example, one verse that I see taken out of context almost continuously is the verse where Paul writes, now make sure you work out your salvation with fear and trembling. They never read the next verse. For it is God who works in you to will and to do for his good pleasure. It is God who's working out your salvation. The onus is completely different. So by us understanding the author, James himself, the writer, by us understanding the recipients of this letter will help us to interpret this letter properly, to understand what his recipients were going through and why James felt it was necessary to write this. Again, summarized that 
spiritual maturity is a necessity in the life of the believer, but many don't know what that means today, especially reacting in spiritual maturity during times of trial, trouble, and tribulation. I like what one wrote. He said, Dr. Warren Worsby, one of the best tests of Christian maturity is tribulation. When God's people go through personal trials, they discover what kind of faith they really possess. Trials not only reveal our faith, but also develop our faith and Christian character. Greg Laurie said this, A Christian is like a teabag. You don't know what it is like until they are put in hot water. That's so true. So as we begin... And we take a look this morning simply at the first verse, understanding who James is and why he was key to the early church, and understanding the recipients, the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. James, a bondservant of God. James identifies himself here in the letter as a bondservant of Jesus Christ, one who has willingly submitted himself to the authority of Jesus Christ. The word bondservant in the Greek is doulos, which most occasions is correctly translated in English, slave. But slave can indicate a person that is you know, unwilling to be subjected to the authority of another. But bondservant has the same connotations, but there's a willingness, a willing subjection to the authority of Jesus Christ. In the culture in which we are reading, a bondservant was a very common part of society. Often these individuals had find themselves in a great debt situation and they owed individuals money that they could not pay back. So to pay the money back, or to work it off more specifically, they would negotiate with with their lender and say, listen, I'll work for you for seven years to pay off the debt that I have with you that I cannot physically pay with money alone. But at the end of that seven years, the individual could make a choice to continue in the servitude of that that person. If that was the case, they would come to the end of the seven years and they would say, listen, this has worked out really well. Uh, This is a good place to be. I'd like to continue with you for the rest of my life. And so that person would be brought to the doorpost of the home and an earring would be placed in their ear indicating that they have willingly submitted themselves to servitude of that person. James is saying, I willingly lay my life down as a servant of Jesus Christ, of God. Now, let us understand, it wasn't always like that for James. And we need to understand who James is by taking a little look at the number of verses where James is mentioned. Let us begin in Matthew 13, 55. These slides should be behind me we find the first thing mentioned about him is that James was a brother to Jesus himself. As they stated, is this not the carpenter's son? Speaking of Jesus, of course. Is not his mother called Mary? 
and his brothers James, uh, Jose, Simon, and Judas. James was a half-brother of Jesus. What do I mean by that? Because James' father was Joseph. Jesus' father was God. Joseph adopted Jesus and raised him as his own. But James was the younger brother to Jesus. Can you imagine the family dynamics there? How would you like your older brother to be God himself? Can you imagine the conversations at the dinner table? Joseph and Mary looking at James. Why can't you be more like your brother Jesus? Well, he's God for Pete's sakes. He's perfect. He's never wrong. Can you imagine family game time? Jesus wins all the time, you know. Well, he knows everything. You know, he pulls out, pulls out Old Testament trivia. It's like, mom and dad, not only does he know it, he wrote it. Can't you be a carpenter like Jesus? Are you kidding me? This is the same guy who created everything. And so, yes, his boat looks better than mine in woodshop, you know. What a dynamic thing. But John 7, 5 tells us that when his brothers growing up with Jesus, they didn't believe. For James, I'm sorry, John 7, 5, for even his brothers did not believe in him. They didn't believe it. I can only imagine how difficult that would have been. I think of Joseph back in the book of Genesis. When Joseph received that dream from God and then he proceeded to tell his brothers, Oh, I, all of you are going to bow down to me, you know. Oh, really, Joseph? How did that work out? First they threw him into a pit, then they, threw, they sold him into slavery, went into Egypt, and of course God was working it all through. Joseph found himself in prison and so forth and ended up being the savior of the family from the famine that came upon the land. But, at some point, James became a bondservant of Jesus Christ. In Acts 1.14, we find that James was there in the upper room praying with the other disciples, and these all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Not only did James, but Jude, of course, who wrote the book of Jude, also came to understand that Jesus was exactly who he said he was. But what led them to believe? What led them to embrace the idea that Jesus was the true Messiah? I think we are given insight into that in 1 Corinthians 15, 7. When, they, when Paul lists those who had seen the resurrected Jesus Christ, he specifically, in 1 Corinthians 15, 7, uh, mentions James. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. It was the resurrection that pushed his brothers to believe. They saw and understood that he was exactly who he said he was. Jesus told us that the, our enemies would often be within our own households. Our family would be some of the hardest ones to reach for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Maybe you found that to be true. 
And yet when it's all said and done, in the end, God has a, a, the, the ability to push past that resistance. God pierces into the heart and into the mind of the individual. I know growing up as, a, as the only Christian in my home, I got saved when I was 16. It was very difficult. I was challenged often by my parents who were very, they were wonderful people. They were highly educated and they resisted the gospel over and over and over again. I'd often feel like I'm taking two steps forward, five steps back, one step forward, three steps back in my evangelism of them. But in the end, my mom, five years before dying, came to saving faith in Jesus Christ, who released her from 50 years of bondage to alcohol. The day before my dad died, he received Jesus Christ. And the last thing that he said verbally, he was singing the song, Jesus loves me. For this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Don't give up on your family members, ever. Continue to pray for that spouse who does not, may not know the Lord. Those children who may have not, don't know the Lord or who have walked away from the Lord. Maybe you've felt as a parent you've done everything you could to raise them and to train them up in the Lord and they've walked away as they're in their older years of their life. Don't stop praying for them. Don't stop being that light to them. Because where you may feel that you are limited and fail, God can supersede that and bring them to saving faith. But James didn't stop there. It appears by Acts chapter 12, verse 17, that James became the head of the church, the early church there in Jerusalem. In Acts 12, 17, Peter himself sends word to James that he had been released from prison. But motioning to them with his hands to keep silent, he declared to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison. And he said, go tell these things to James and to the brethren. And he departed and went to another place. It was James later on in Acts 15 that moderated the first debate within the early church. It's after the Gentiles received the Holy Spirit through Peter's witness. There was questions, there were concerns about how this would work with Gentile believers. Did they first have to become Jews before they could become believers in Jesus Christ? There was real tension in the early church. But James was one of those cooler heads that prevailed in the conversation. As the head of the church there, he said in verse 13 of Acts 15, after they had become silent, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, listen to me. Simon, that is Simon Peter, had declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. Meaning, this is what God said he was going to do. That the gospel would go outside of the boundaries of Israel and affect the Gentile world. And James, in tune with what God wanted to do through his word, recognized that what was happening was a natural progression to what God had begun there in Jerusalem. When Paul finally came to Jerusalem delivering the special offering that he had collected amongst the Gentile churches, it was James that he gave it to. In Acts 21, 18 through 19, 
On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. And when he had greeted them, he told in detail those things which God had done amongst the Gentiles through his ministry. Later, in one of Paul's early books, the book of Galatians, Paul actually calls James a pillar, meaning a foundational key element or person within the early church. As he says in Galatians 2.9, And when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Well, history tells us that James died in 62 A.D. And Warren Worsby writes about a story concerning his death. The story is that the Pharisees in Jerusalem so hated James' testimony for Christ that they had him cast down from the temple and then beaten to death with clubs. The story also relates that James died, as did the Savior, praying for his murderers. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He went on to say, what kind of man was James? He must have been a deeply spiritual man to gain the leadership of of the church in Jerusalem for in this short period of time. Historians tell us that uh, James had a very interesting nickname. I don't know if it's necessarily flattering, but they used to call him Old Camel Knees. Why? Because his knees were so calloused from prayer that they looked like the knees of a camel. This is the author of our letter, a pillar in the early church, the head of the church there in Jerusalem, a brother of Jesus who initially did not believe until the resurrection grasped his heart and his mind. And he couldn't argue with it any longer that Jesus was exactly who he said he was. So this brings us to the recipients to the 12 tribes that are scattered abroad. The dispersion. Some of your Bibles may have the Greek word, the diaspora. It means people who are displaced. People who have been exiled from their own nation. The dispersion began after the Babylonian captivity of the Jewish people. For as you know, very few returned to Jerusalem when God made it possible for them to do so. Many of them stayed in Babylon. They stayed in other Gentile regions and made lives for themselves there. Eventually, never to return to Israel again. But after that, there were various times throughout the history of the Jewish people that other nations came in and expelled the Jews or portions of them, through significant and serious persecution. And they ran into various areas of the world for safety, leaving their land, leaving their, uh, sometimes their families, their homes, their material possessions, their careers behind, in hopes to find safety and solitude, in hopes that they can find peace apart from persecution. In fact, in John 7.35, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, when Jesus said that he was about to soon depart, questioned 
and ask themselves, is he going to go about the dispersion? Is he going to speak to the Jewish people who are abroad, who have been exiled in many, to- in many cases from their own homelands? And to the present day, that is the present, present biblical day, the dispersion returns to Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2 during the Feast of Pentecost. It is the Jews of the dispersion that hear Peter as he is speaking in various tongues, praising God, speaking in their tongues, praising God. And these people from Babylonia, from Egypt, from Syria, from Asia Minor and Rome, these all became key areas of those who are part of the dispersion. He's writing to Jewish people who are now Christians, who are apart from their homeland. One of the fascinating elements of the Bible is the transition between the Old and the New Covenant. We read it in our society, in our Western culture, in 2022. Looking back at those pages in hindsight, but truly being removed from much of the difficulty that was uh, found in the pages of that time of the Bible. It was a difficult transition for Jewish individuals to become Christians. The new covenant was so different and radically different than the Mosaic covenant. Now they are saved by faith and faith alone. No longer can they govern and, under, and identify their righteousness by the laws in which they keep and the laws in which they break. Now they're told that their faith alone has saved them in Jesus Christ. But how does that work? It was so different to them. It was so difficult. And being removed from Israel, they're removed from their entire identity as individuals. Remember, God had brought them out of Egypt into Israel to form His own people with their, with their own identity shaped by the law itself. But now they're removed from their land again. Many of them had the mindset that, wait a minute, we're dispersed from our land, we're amongst the Gentiles, and being a part of the Gentile world, we are now finding ourselves persecuted once again. This time, it's because they won't embrace the polytheistic idea of God. They cannot bow down to the various pagan gods that are found within that society. And when it was contained just to the pagan gods, and most of them during the Roman era were adopted from the Greeks, that was okay. But then the Roman Empire decided to deify the emperor himself. And that left the Jewish people who are now Christians in a real dilemma. For often in places that the Romans controlled, the largest temple there was to the emperor himself, who would release coins, and on those coins it would call the emperor the son of God. And every so often that emperor needed to be worshipped by all of the population of that particular city or town. Worship would be called, everybody was, was expected to attend, but there was a problem because the Jewish Christians could not bow their knee to the emperor. They couldn't. 
For they had grown up knowing as Jews that the Lord thy God, the Lord is one. And now as Christians, they, their allegiance to Jesus Christ would prohibit them from recognizing such a false deity as the emperor. So when others bowed, they would, re, they would have to stand, easily identifying them for the Roman soldiers to arrest. And then they would again lose their property, materialism, their homes, separated from their families, often killed and executed. Now, being Jewish and just beginning to understand the new covenant in Jesus Christ, they would revert to thinking as Jews again, thinking to themselves, we must have done something wrong before God because we're experiencing the curses of Deuteronomy chapter 29. If we were right with God, we, would be, we wouldn't find ourselves in this position. If God was happy and pleased with us, why are we suffering, suffering at such great lengths? I truly believe this is one of the reasons that Jesus overemphasized the idea that if they hated him, they will hate you also and will persecute you. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, we are like sheep led to the slaughter. Why? Because Jesus himself was crucified. We too will be persecuted. After Stephen had given the first historical um, sermon, I guess you would call it, concerning the rejection and the rebellious nature of the Jewish people, he was therefore executed immediately after. But these people displaced were alone. A stranger in a strange world, if you, if you like. And as the persecution increased and intensified, they would often think, that I must have done something to warrant this. I must have displeased God in some way. And it was a very difficult time for them. But this is when James comes now to write this letter. To encourage them. To strengthen them. To correct them in some of their thinking and some of their actions helping them to see that their salvation is based upon the finished work of Jesus Christ and how they may know that they are saved. To tell them, count it all joy when you find yourselves in various trials, knowing that these trials are producing in you character and purpose. Peter said the same thing. To the diaspora, the same people that James wrote to, Peter wrote to in 1 Peter, Encouraging them with the same thing. Reminding them of their identity in Jesus Christ. Because they were so displaced. As our nation changes, we see a move away from the Judeo-Christian principles that our nation was built upon. And in the last ten years, it has changed radically, hasn't it? where not only are the ideas of Judeo-Christianity, the moral standards, the foundation, not only abandoned, but now vilified. We are being told that it is Judeo-Christianity that is holding the world back from the progression that it needs to follow to become the hopeful utopia that they desire. Well, if that's true, I hope we hold it back even more, don't you? Because we are not creating a 
utopia, but a dystopia. They are trying to create people in their own image. Individuals and governments are now trying to take the place of authority in the life of the individual that God and God alone should hold. Any society that abandons God creates a vacuum, and that vacuum must be filled, and what it is often filled with throughout history, almost always, is government. Either a king or an official of some sort. One of the gravest mistakes Israel ever made was to beg God to give them a king like everyone else. Everything changed from that, didn't it? Everything changed. Many of us feel alone today. We feel it's just a monumental task before us. We feel like the nation is slipping away, destroying itself. Just three years ago, none of us could have ever predicted a two-year pandemic. High inflation, $6 gas prices, food shortages. We couldn't even have thought that in 2019. Dean and I often talk about that. One of the last things we remember is we went downtown December of 2019 because we treated our daughter to see the Phantom of the Opera. What a beautiful play it was. It was a wonderful Christmas. But none of us could have predicted what was going to happen next. Our nation is living in a state of fear now. And of course, that fear is being capitalized and exploited. Oh, if it's not COVID-19, of course, it's monkeypox. There'll always be something more trying to keep us unstable, trying to keep us in a sense of insecurity. This is our time of trouble, tribulation, and trial. This is our time now to shine brighter than ever before. For like Esther, we have been put here for a time such as this. I don't know where we signed up for that, but so be it. Here we are. Now is not the time to retreat, but now is the time to shine brighter than ever before. And to do so, we must be spiritually mature. To do so, we must react to the trial, trouble, and tribulation around us as Christ would have us to react. We must fight the battles that God would have us to fight. And of course, one of those battles, I believe, is the sanctity of life. It is time now that we stand up. I believe the Christian church has been too passive on social issues for many, many, many decades now. And as a result, we are now reaping what we have sown. Now again, when I say that, please let me clarify. I'm talking about responding to these things in a biblical, godly manner. But we can do so and still have resolve, still stand strong. We can stand up in humility and meekness just as firmly as they can in their anger and hatred. We know that marriage was created between a man and a woman. Our children today are being subjected to things that we couldn't even have comprehended five years ago. Mutilation, puberty blockers, just because a little girl wants to play with a truck. 
This is where our nation is today. And the only thing that can stop its decay is God. The only thing. We need to stand up and say enough's enough. We do so in godliness, in love, the way Christ would have us. But the reason we fight these battles is because we have children. Because we have grandchildren. And as individuals who have fought battles for us in the past to allow us the freedoms that we enjoy today, let us not relinquish these things haphazardly, carelessly. But let us stand strong in the Lord. I believe the book of James will help equip us to do that. To react in spiritual maturity to the pressures that the world is placing upon us. To understand what we believe and why we believe it. Not to proceed in haughtiness and pride or anger, but with resolve. To allow us to stand in a time such as this, that we may be lights unto the world. During the two years of the COVID pandemic, I was absolutely astonished at how so many people seemed to check out and to give up on critical thinking. I was, so, I was so amazed to find the number of Christians, rather than moving forward in their Christian faith, began to conform into the image of this world. Not to question or to raise your hand and say, excuse me, why are we doing this? Does this make sense? Why were we so quick to relinquish so much authority and power to unelected officials? I was amazed. Now is not a time for us to conform to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our mind in Christ Jesus. This is our day. This is our time to stand up. But as James will show us, the early church had its problems similar to ours. Under the weight of persecution, trial, trouble, and tribulation, They were not living as professed believers. They couldn't control their tongue. They became worldly rather than godly. There were significant divisions amongst them. And these are just to name a few. But all these are common today. As Warren Worsby closed, he said this, and I want to leave you with this today as an introduction to the book of James. He says, spiritual maturity is one of the greatest needs in our churches today. Too many churches, too many churches, excuse me, are playpens for babies instead of workshop for adults. That's strong language for this gentleman. I had the privilege of hearing Warren Worsby. He's a very, he was a very gracious man. He's home with the Lord now. He was a pastor at Moody for years. He said, after over a quarter century, century of ministry, I am convinced, he states, that spiritual immaturity is the number one problem in our churches today. God is looking for mature men and women to carry on His work. And sometimes all He can find are little children who can't even get along with each other. So the book of James. Now, let me encourage you. You will profit so much more greatly if you read ahead. So make it a point over this week to read the entire book of James. 
Get a feel for it. Get a lay of the land, if you will. And begin to familiarize yourself with what James is saying and then we'll go through it verse by verse together here on Sunday mornings. Guys, I want to say again in closing, I'm encouraged right now. Oh, I'm not encouraged by the direction our world is going into. I'm not encouraged by what I see happening and the lives being destroyed. But I am encouraged that from history, I read from the very beginning of the church throughout church history, whenever a society began to collapse and to degrade in the sense and, uh, that we see it today is when God works the greatest. And I want to be part of what God's doing. I want to see people come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. I want to see Christians grow to spiritual maturity, which we'll define as we go through the book of James together. I want us to take this opportunity to be lights in the darkness, to be salt in this world. I want us as Christians to rally around our King and to shout out, there is hope in Jesus for anyone who will turn to Him. I want you and I to be on the cutting edge of what God's doing. You know what? Because that's a great place to be. It's a tough place to be, but it's a great place to be. You know, often through high school, in playing sports, I often rode the bench because there was always somebody who was better than I was. So when I became a Christian, I said, God, I don't want to ride the bench anymore. I want to be involved. I want to be in the game. I want to be part of what you are doing. Because when it's all said and done, that's all that matters, right? When we stand before Jesus Christ as individuals, that's all that matters is what we did with the new life that God has given us and to use it for His glory and His purposes. Yeah, there's difficult times ahead, but in those difficulties, as the darkness grows even darker, our lights can shine even brighter. And I pray that the book of James will equip us to do just that.